and welcome to Debuts, a podcast series brought to you from the Global International Development Program at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Global translates academic research into a practical understanding of community development, an approach empowering communities in need across the world to prosper and succeed. I am Chagit Kakovchelny, a humanitarian professional and a Global alumni, and we are here to talk about development work through current events and case studies, exploring the most pressing challenges and questions the field holds. Today we're going to speak about the localization agenda, how it pushes international actors to redefine their role and make space for national and local actors, why the sector urgently needs to see this change, and what are the power dynamics involved. We have people who have gone to school, we have people who are lecturing at the international level, and we have people who can change things within the country. But from the international perspective, South Sudanese cannot do it. Where are the locals? This is the question. Where are the locals? We have international organizations that run everything. James Labadia is a development professional, youth advocate, and head of the RISE Consortium of Local Organizations in South Sudan. Active Agency is a local youth empowerment organization. It improves livelihoods, promotes small-scale businesses for youth, and works against gender-based violence. They coordinate with other international organizations and lead data gathering for the gender-based violence subcluster in South Sudan. South Sudan. Throughout his career, Labadia has observed how South Sudanese professionals and organizations are being sidelined in recruitment, strategic decision-making, and program funding. As a local organization, if you want to get money, if you want to get funding, they're foreign. So much as we recruit these people from outside, they get a lot of money, they get paid huge money, but we have locals that can do the same work. There are institutions that do not want that. Okay, you will create in an employment some way. Uganda want to get employment, Kenya want to get employment, even people from UK want to get employment. They come here, we train them, but they become your bosses. Localization looks at such examples and says, this is wrong. We must not sideline capable local professionals in recruitment processes. How can this way of working benefit South Sudan? How can we call this development? Localization has been a recurring theme in the development sector for at least 20 years. Although there is no single definition, it has come to mean the need to recognize, rebalance, reinforce, or return ownership to local and national actors. In short, shifting the power away from the international actors and allowing local professionals to hold the central role in developing their own communities and countries. Localization and humanitarian action is not new either. Robert Chambers and Marie Anderson's book first brought the issue to light as early as in the 1980s. Their initial points were emphasized later by the Tsunami Evaluation Coalition's iconic recommendation saying, the international humanitarian community needs a fundamental reorientation from supplying aid to supporting and facilitating communities' own relief and recovery priorities. Despite the recommendation, the international humanitarian system seems to have the tendency to position itself at the center of crisis without fully accepting local capacities, assets, and culture. Today, websites, social media pages, and publications of international development and humanitarian organizations speak prominently about localization. However, walking the walk is incredibly more difficult. There's this 
saying we promote localization, but the promotion of localization ends up in words. People say it, no action. We don't want to push aside international, as local as possible and as international as necessary. You know, as local as possible is to be done by me, who is a local person, and as international as necessary, I need to draw the expertise of people from wherever they are. I have international friends who are in the US, we have friends who are in Israel, we have friends who are in Sudan, we have friends in Uganda. Can we have the way they do their things so that we implement it in South Sudan? During the 2016 World Humanitarian Summit, some of the largest donors and humanitarian organizations drafted the grand bargain and committed themselves to getting more funding into the hands of local organizations, improving the effectiveness and efficiency of their work. As of today, 64 organizations have signed the grand bargain agreement. Signatures include ActionAid, CARE, the International Federation of the Red Cross Societies, the International Rescue Committee, Oxfam, Save the Children, and other famous names. Unfortunately, reports published present the low progress the development sector as a whole has made on these commitments. In, in the grand bargain, I think there was an ambition to, to give 25% of humanitarian uh, aid to go to directly to local and national organizations by 2020. Uh, and I think by 2021, that figure was still around um, maybe 3%. There's been a huge kind of shortfall in, in that ambition to get more resources into the hands of, um, of local and national responders. Development professional and senior innovation manager who has dedicated the last few years of his career to localizing humanitarian response. So I work for ELRA, uh, for the Humanitarian Innovation Fund at ELRA, and we fund research and innovation in humanitarian crises. Much of our work to date has focused on health in humanitarian crises and water and sanitation, uh, gender-based violence and disability and older age inclusion. It's also the case that much of uh, our funding in the past has gone to organizations, international organizations headquartered in Europe and North America. And much of my work in, in recent years has been looking at ways that we can improve accessibility, uh, access to our funding and support to organizations that are um, based and headquartered in, uh, in, in the global south. This, I mean, I think there's obviously been a huge shift in, uh, in the humanitarian sector in recent years and uh, towards the localization agenda, uh, particularly following the World Humanitarian Summit in 2016. And that was partly about getting more funding and support to local and national responders, uh, and also it included um, a work stream on what was called the, the participation revolution, which was focused on including people receiving um, humanitarian aid uh, in decisions which affect their lives. The pandemic has considerably increased reliance on local organizations and local staff as travel restrictions reduced international access to communities. There was a renewed sense of urgency and the need to support local and national actors. However, at Elra, you worked on shifting the power way before the pandemic. Can you tell us more about that? So coming from this perspective where most of our funding was going to, 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 to international organizations, we wanted to address this issue directly. Um, and as a grant-making organization based in the UK, uh, that's quite difficult for us because we, um, yeah, we, 
we're, we're, we're not located in those places. Um, we're not, uh, I guess most of our networks are situated in, in the global north. They're much more kind of with um, the big international agencies and, and UN agencies are looking. And so I guess we were trying to find a starting point. You know, how do we how do we go out doing this? A few years ago now, we set up a partnership with the Asia Disaster Reduction and Response Network, uh, a network of local and national organizations um, based throughout the Asia Pacific region. And we've been through a process of exploring with them how to improve the way that we do things and how to improve our our processes and, and structures, provide our funding and support to to convene um, different actors within that ecosystem. So from individual community members um, to universities, private sector partners, uh, and to bring people together in the development of solutions in response to those problems. It seems as if the attitude has changed and more local professionals are becoming core actors in the sector. However, the roles have stayed the same. Implementation is still led by international NGOs that are locally registered, and national practitioners are continuing to lead community processes. However, decisions and agenda have already been set, and coordination and resources are still led by international headquarters. So what do you believe can positively impact the power shifting we're all talking about? Much of our work in funding innovation is about creating the space for local and national organizations to imagine new ways of doing things and to try out new ideas that are locally led and locally owned. I believe that ultimately for, for local leadership to become the norm, there needs to be more flexible and ideally unrestricted funding to enable this kind of activity to get beyond local and national organizations just playing this role of implementing partner. You know, they, they need that space to come up with, with new solutions. They need that funding to develop those, that local infrastructure. They need to have that support to, to come together and, and develop their own ways of working and their own solutions that are um, locally rooted in those places. Uh, I think it's really about trying to make sure that we've got the balance right in the sector and that you know, we are putting sufficient resources into driving those transformational changes that we want to see in the sector um, towards localization uh, that just isn't really happening at the moment. You look at something like um, the, uh, the rise in, in cash programming in, in humanitarian aid, which is seen as one of the kind of big transformations over the last 10 years. The cash learning partnership has, has played a big role in really developing the evidence base around it and driving advocacy around that agenda and I don't see that same I guess investment in in that kind of infrastructure and that coordinated learning and testing um, so I think there needs to be much more investment in that kind of shared space for collective learning around how how we do this it goes way beyond the work that, that we do just to kind of um, support community-based solutions because we really need to interrogate the way that the sector works contractual and legal and, and and the policies that 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 determine you know the path that we're on so there's lots of work that needs to be done at different levels in order to shift the power in June 2020, Labadia sat down with representatives of five other local organizations and brainstormed about how to design a platform that can support local needs and induce them with resources, capacity, skills, and know-how. 
A year later, they officially launched a consortium that allows them to apply for larger grants together and create a bigger impact for the people of South Sudan. We have the capacity. We can move. We can do it. Things will still uh, with us. Things will move. Without us, things will still move. But why since we are here, why can't we be part and parcel of that development? Why can't we be part and parcel of doing things in South Sudan? That's why we honestly say, can we try localization? Can we promote localization? A senior member of Oxfam said that localization is assuring that local people and communities have the power and agency to drive their own development. In the past, the ownership agenda has tried to do this in various ways and has yet to succeed. Today, there are global and local movements such as Shift the Power, the Movement for Community-Led Development, the Global Alliance for Communities, and many others. Labadia, how would you define power? Power is measured by resource. And here, the resource I mean is money. Power dynamics is measured in such a way that who has this much money to put for the implementation of activities? As a local organizations, yes, our power is lies, lies in the community. We are known, we have the influence, we have the connection with the local community. But when it comes to the resource allocation, resource acquisition, we have a limited power. Why? It's because international looks for some systems to be set in place. When we come to South Sudan Humanitarian Fund, they say, you who do not have a capacity, you can get this money. The ones with the capacity gets that money. For locals, is it set low, and for international, is set to certain level. For the UN, they have all the decisions for that money. This already gives the aspect of power imbalance. When decisions are heard from international organizations and decisions are made by UN, it means that we always have a very small say in the resource allocation. What is the approach of the government? Do they promote local initiatives? Very excellent question. As I said, we just got independence in uh, 2011. Just after independence, go to government offices. All the secretaries are international people, huh? people coming from other countries. The secretaries at government offices are international. With the local organizations, there's always these meetings government do to promote working together with the local organizations. But is it really implemented? No. Why is it happening? Is it still a question that needs this one million answers? Government is trying its best to streamline the system. The multiple uh, international people or foreign people that you see in the local uh, offices, government offices are now going away. They have even asked in the, for international organizations whenever you you take the job advice, they see the condition and they ask, are you asking for national uh, person to fill this position or international person to fill the position? If, they, if it is written for international, why do you call it international? 
with the, this local person that has the capacity, that have the same experience, with that person fill the position. These are now the negotiations that the government do uh, with the international and UN agencies. But the resource allocation question is still some that, something that we need to advocate and lobby for, seriously. Our experience in South Sudan is that uh, local organizations work have impact in community. It's visible. Their work is visible. But for the international, you see them moving from a location to another, nothing happens. Changing perceptions plays a central role in building trust between the local and international actors in the sector. Labadia, what is a common stereotype you are confronted with when speaking with international actors? We, as South Sudanese, the first thing that people know us of is violence. We have been fighting and they fighting, fighting, and fighting. Until today, we are fighting, okay? This is the first thing that people globally know South Sudan about. Therefore, we, our push for localization is now to begin uh, washing away some of the mindset that the people have towards us. Can't we have that capacity also to move things forward? Can't we have that initiative to make sure that we we implement our own program as a local organization. How does your work influence these mindsets? We are trying to have these initiatives of the consortium so that we come together and we become stronger to uh, attract the funding, uh, increasing our global visibility. We don't want to be seen only in South Sudan. So much as the launching of consortium was done in South Sudan, but we also did it outside. Now, we are strategizing ourselves to get the connections. Like with the RISE Consortium, we have a mindset people-centered solution, an international consultants company, and we say, let them be our background player, prepare our due diligence properly, then after that, coming to them, they will just see, we get that funding. Yeah, I think why we have the consortium is we want to test it in South Sudan, but if we test it, why can't we be an experiment for others? If we set it from grassroots level and it is moving on very well, it can be replicated elsewhere. And we are very ready uh, and open for partners wherever they are to come and learn from us. Ian, how is your work influencing the framework and mindset of people in the international development sector? Participation in humanitarian innovation is something that we've been thinking a lot about. And we've been doing work with um, uh, MIT D-Lab um, over the last year, looking at how to improve participation in humanitarian innovation processes. And they have a very nice framework that, um, that we're adopting uh, that looks that that thinks about participation in terms of three different paradigms. Uh, the first is design for, whereby um, the, the humanitarian or the humanitarian designer designs programs or designs new, new solutions and, uh, and practices on behalf of, um, I guess, by people affected by crises. So that might involve some degree of consultation um, and some degree of, uh, you know, um, yeah, that might involve some degree of consultation. Um, the, the second paradigm is design with, so that's looking much more at kind of co-creation co type activities. So working, um, 
so collaborative working between the uh, the designer and the um, the end user to develop solutions. Uh, and the third paradigm is design by, and that means like empowering people with the tools to design their own solutions. Um, and that for me is a very is a very nice way of, of thinking about um, thinking carefully about who holds power and how to value different kinds of expertise, including both like the you know the the technical expertise of the um, uh, but also lived experience. So how we how we kind of account for um, yeah the the expertise and power that's held in these different roles, like who is designing on behalf of whom and and what gives legitimacy to people in those positions of power. Um, and I think you know, so often within the humanitarian space, um, we are within like the design for paradigm where there is you know, token gestures towards consultation um, and we need to move much more towards design with and design by. So we're transferring the, the power and the tools and the funding to enable people to develop their own solutions to the problems that they face. We know now that localization is moving from the design for to the design by paradigm, as Ian suggested, and these are long-term processes. However, patience is running out while resources and local response are at their most urgent need. The pandemic has proven yet again the need to rethink the roles of the local and international actors and the power dynamics between them. In some countries, we've witnessed the sudden abandonment of internationals during the initial phase of the pandemic as a deepening dependency catastrophe, while in others, we have seen local initiatives thriving and the implementation being pushed forward. Now that the pandemic is under control, will remote management tools be put back on the shelf? Will the internationals reclaim their place at the center of crisis just like before? What is preventing organizations and donors from taking a leap of local faith and reinforcing locality as a form of sustainable development and stronger humanitarian action? Is it the lack of organizational capacity? Is it trust, policy, experience, academic background, or fear of losing the international role, as Labadia suggested? Or perhaps it's just another earthquake to the sector that no one is yet prepared to fully respond to. Like ELRA, there are many international organizations who are working to promote localization and supporting local agenda. And like RISE, the consortium in South Sudan, there are many professional national organizations that we should get to know.